Has anyone seen a TV series or part of a TV series called AD Kingdoms and Empires? Has anyone seen that? We've watched part of it, but I'm just going to play a clip for you from, from that series. My friends, it's time. Where is he taking us? To the temple. Our nation is poisoned. Turn away from hate. Turn away from violence. Jesus is the light of the world. Amen. Open your hearts. Hear our message of hope and love for all people. Come. Jesus is the good shepherd. People would not act this way if they knew the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ is coming to Jerusalem. He is him, the resurrection and the life. I suppose it's thankless to ask, but I'd very much like to know how you escaped yourself. Then I can only assume that you have some experience of lockpicking, a skill which most reasonable people would associate with criminality. Very well, you are accused of continuing to teach the name of a false prophet. You defy the temple and conspire to lead the lost souls of this city astray. What have you to say to this? Answer me! Out of respect for the learned elders of the Sanhedrin, we will not seek to defend our beliefs. We only know them to be true. There can be no defense or clarification or mitigation of the truth. It simply is. And what is the truth? That God raised Jesus from the dead to sit at his right hand as prince and savior. And it was his spirit that freed us from your chains. You are aware that saying such things condemns you as false prophets according to the law. There is only one outcome. You are to be put to death by stones. A few words. Spoke. For so many lives to be clipped. Rabbi Gamaliel, do you find fault in our application of the law? No, no, no. Probably not. But as president of the Sanhedrin, I'm obligated to poke a finger into matters that pique my interest. Of course, but what more is there to say? They've been found guilty. Yes, 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 yes. It's all very upsetting. But I wonder, do you not recall the enthusiasms of your own youth and being carried away by them? Your wisdom is highly valued and recognized by all, but... But I should sit down now, should I? No, no, I cannot. My conscience pricks at me for us both. Let these men alone. They are not dangerous. If what they claim is false, then nothing will come of it. And in time, they will simply fade away. But if it is true and you destroy them, you will find yourselves in opposition to God.
having considered the wisdom of Gamaliel. It is agreed that the sentence shall be commuted. But you're to be taken to a public place and flogged so that everyone may know your guilt. If you do not obey the Lord your God and do not carefully follow all his commands and decrees, you will be cursed in the city and cursed in the country. The fruit of your womb will be cursed. The crops of your land, the calves of your herds, the lambs of your flocks. You will be cursed when you come in and cursed when you go out. The Lord will send on you curses, confusion and rebuke with everything you put your hand to until you are destroyed and come to suffer ruin. Because Sacrifices. That's what Jesus told us, Stephen. Not like this. So, if you didn't work it out, that's um, part of the starting of the church uh, from uh, passage in Acts five. When Tanya and I watched that, Tanya went, "Did they really get flogged?" And went and had a look at the passage. From Acts 5. But there was something that really stirred me up about watching that that was wrong, that I wasn't comfortable with, that was agitating me, that really almost made me angry. Now, I get that there's creative freedom in someone who's making a, a movie. That's completely fine. You know, why does an angel have, you know, band-aids on his toes? I don't know. Um, and in the passage, the locks didn't get smashed off. They actually found that the jails all locked and them in the temple preaching. You know, there's, there's differences in there. But there's something that I actually think is the most significant part of that passage of Scripture that was completely and utterly ignored, possibly even deliberately so. And for me, that's really concerning in terms of sharing the gospel and sharing the truth of what God has to say. I'm going to read the passage at the end of this whole block and I'm just going to see if you can pick it up. I'm reading from the, the ESV for, for those that are wondering. So this is, this is Gamaliel speaking to them. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. If this plan is an undertaking of man, it will fail. But if it is God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice, and when they had called in the apostles, now in the reality they actually sent the apostles out to have this conversation. For the movie they didn't. You know, that's just some creative freedom. But So they took his advice, and when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. And this is how the passage, the scripture actually finishes. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name and every day in the temple and from house to house they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus there's this 
concept, the punchline of the whole part of that story is that they walked out rejoicing with the opportunity to suffer in Christ's name. And they, they almost even more empowered and more spurred on to go out and share the truth of what Jesus has set for them. My discomfort was with their hopelessness. Um, now, I get that they were in pain. I, I'm not trying to pretend that you know, there's this sense of pain and suffering in what they were doing. And, and it's hard to present pain and, and rejoicing without making it look kind of crazy. Um, they were crazy. They were crazy. They, they, they had come across this amazing truth that they could not let go. And in fact, the more that they were suppressed, the more that they rejoiced that they were part of suffering for what Christ was suffering. This is not the first time I've seen it. If anyone's watched the movie The Apostle, um, Paul the Apostle, I don't know if you've seen that in the cinemas. Again, I really appreciate the sentiment of understanding what martyrs have gone through to suffer for Christ. But they did that not because they wanted to suffer, but because they were holding on to a truth that was way more significant. The, the missing piece in pretty much the whole of that film was the fact that the disciples were passionate and driven because there was nothing that was going to hold them back. And therefore, they could rejoice in suffering. Not because they loved the suffering, but because there was something way bigger and more to rejoice in. And this is the theme. We've been working through 1 Peter, and this is the theme that we've been working through. Peter was the main character in that, by the way. And you think about a group of guys full of the Holy Spirit, pumped up. They've worked out who Jesus is. The lights have gone on, and they're out way more than, than what's represented there. Representing Christ, passionate, eager for that. Move ahead, I don't know how many years, to an old Peter who's now writing at the end of his journey. He's lived the life. He's, you know, heading towards the end. And this is what he's saying to the scattered church from 1 Peter 4, starting at verse 12. Beloved. He loves his brothers and sisters. That's really important. He starts by saying, beloved. Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. So it's not rejoice in the suffering, but rejoice in that this suffering is actually an intermediate step to something way bigger and more significant than this. That's why rejoicing. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a meddler. So he's going, there's plenty of ways you can suffer. You can suffer because you did something that, you know, if you're a murderer, it's pretty stupid. Yeah, you deserve to suffer the consequences of that. But he's going, don't, don't suffer for the sake of suffering just to be, because you've been doing stupid things. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. If we're carrying the truth of the gospel, it starts with us. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will, if your eyes are fixed on God and as a result of that you suffer, 
and his purposes, entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Again, it's not about the suffering. We can get fixated on the suffering and, and there's, there's even monks and, and people who set themselves apart to go, I need to suffer for Christ, I need to suffer. It's not about the suffering. It's about having a perspective of who God is, of who Jesus is and the truth of that. And this has really struck me this week because I think we have a very shallow understanding of who Jesus is in our lives. I heard someone speak on Friday who, who unpacked a little bit of the Jewish culture and the understanding of, of what they saw when they saw Jesus. What happens when a group of people sitting in a boat says, we're freaked out, wake up Jesus, and he calms the waves? Who can calm the waves? Who has the power and authority to calm the waves? God. Only God can calm the waves. The Jewish history has taught them that by parting the waves at the Red Sea. Only God can, can part the waves. So who is in the boat with us right now? Do you know who they were more afraid of than the waves, than the storm? The guy sitting in the boat with them. They've just had a revelation that the guy sitting in the boat is actually God among us. That is profound. What have we got ourselves into? Let's go back to a young Peter. Now, Peter, we get the picture that he's got a bit of bravado and he's writing this as an old man. Beautiful picture to encourage the church. Let's look at a young Peter who's still on the journey from Mark 8. You might remember this when we were studying Mark. Jesus and the disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you? He asked, who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Messiah. Jesus warned them, not to tell anyone about him. Peter must be pretty chuffed right about now. You know, he's worked it out, worked out who the Messiah is. A plus for Peter. This is what keeps going. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. So he's talking about this now that there's a bit of a picture of this Messiah in the, in the scene. They've got a bit of understanding. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. So we've got this picture of a Messiah, and the Messiah was one who saves, and Peter's gone, you're not going to die. You're not going to suffer because you're the saviour. I've got this worked out. And Jesus says to Peter in his, in his ignorance and, and bravado, you have no idea what this picture looks like. You have the eyes of a man. You're seeing things through man's eyes, not through God's. When we come to suffering, we so often see it through our own eyes, through the eyes of, of a very narrow perspective. And yet when we look at this passage and why, why, why this video uh, irritates me so much is because it has such a narrow perspective that is actually through the eyes of man. Yes, they did suffer. And yet by that stage, different Peter to this Peter, this Peter was young and naive, yep, and Jesus made it really clear. Like what sort of a rebuke is that? 
you know, I know you're the Messiah and I'm coming along and saying, nah, nah, nothing bad's going to happen to you. You're, you're the Messiah. I've, I've already got an A plus for that. And he says, get behind me, Satan. Like, that's a pretty bold thing to say. That's a pretty severe rebuke. But I think for us, we can struggle. We can struggle with getting the picture of the truth of what God is saying and the truth of what Jesus means in our lives and we can water things down to a perspective that's man's. It's not about suffering. It's not about suffering. But suffering is a small piece of the puzzle that fits into a much bigger, more amazing, more significant picture that we are only scratching the surface of. And when we look at it through man's eyes, we actually get a distorted picture. We often look at things out of context. Who, ha- who knows the verse? I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Who's heard that before? Does anyone know what book it's in? Philippians. Yep, very good, very good. Now, it's one of these verses that gets completely taken out of context. Because I want to read the passage to you. Um, And it fits in with this theme that we're talking about. Uh, Here we go. Philippians 4.10. I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have received your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. So he's talking to the Philippian church and they wanted to bless him, provide for his needs, but they didn't have a chance. And so he's now received a gift um, from them that's come a long way. Theodos sent him some supplies, I assume. And they said, I know you wanted to give me something and you didn't have a chance. And now you have, I'm rejoicing with that. Keeps going. Now that I'm speaking, uh, not that I'm speaking of being in need. For I have learned in whatever situation I'm to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstances, every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So the context is so different. You take it from a selfish, worldly point of view and you start going, yay, everything's mine. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. He's saying it's actually the strength comes out of a place of not caring whether I'm in abundance or I'm poor. Not caring whether I've got a lot or a little because Christ is my strength. I see a picture bigger than my circumstances. Yet again, we've got Paul now saying, guys, there's something important to be held here. There's something important. There's a truth here that that is distorted, that is twisted. We get so focused on, on the world's way, which is selfish, my way of looking at the picture I actually, I actually miss out on something amazing, and that is God's perspective, God's picture. Two years ago on the Southern Cross Kids Camp, I videoed each of the buddies. Their instruction was to give a word of encouragement to their camper, just something that they could um, have on the little USB key that they're given along with the photos, um, but also they played it on the camp. And there was, there was no other prompt than that. Could you just, you know, just something to encourage them that later on they can look at and say, you know, their name gets said by their buddy, and, and that's, that's it. Now, about half of them said something along the sentiments of, whatever you dream for, go for it, you can do it. And I thought to myself, that's a complete lie. 
And I, I got the heart. The heart was they want to encourage kids that are in tough spaces and that have had a lot of their dreams and their hopes ripped out of their lives. So I'm not, I'm not criticising the sentiment. They were trying to be encouraging. And yet when we come to passages like this, like what 1 Peter 4 is, is sharing, therefore those who suffer according to God's will will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good, go for your dreams doesn't fit into that picture. It's actually a lie that the world tells us to say, go for your dreams, be selfish, whatever you want you can aim for, and if, you, if you're passionate enough about it, you'll get there. Who's ever had any dreams that didn't get fulfilled? Does that mean God's unfaithful? No. Does that mean God doesn't care about you? Does that mean God doesn't have a plan for your life? Does that mean there's no purpose? Does that mean Jesus didn't die for you? There's a whole heap of things that all of a sudden get undermined when we aim for for worldly dreams and we fall short. It's a lie. It's a deception. And when we don't have the perspective of seeing God's plan and purpose, the bigger picture, that God actually came to earth and dwelt with mankind. These disciples walked with God. They had God as their teacher. They laughed with him. God sat and laughed with them, right? Yahweh came and sat with them and invested in their lives. Then they watched God die and rise from the dead in front of them. They met the risen Christ. They did not care about anything anyone else thought. They were so fixated on this mind-blowing perspective of what life now looked like. They did not care. And yet we wrestle, we struggle, we, we struggle and we paint. We want to water the picture down and we go, well, you know, if you aim for your dreams, at least that's encouraging someone. No, it's a lie. It's not helping. We have a message that is profound. We have Christ in us. That same Christ that walked with them is actually in us, journeying with us. Is that profound or what? Does that supersede any suffering or any pain or any circumstance or any challenge that you could face? That is mind-blowing. And these guys had their minds blown and were not letting anything get in the way from them. And that is what Peter is saying to these people. Who's ever heard of a phrase that Jesus might have said, greater love has no one than this? that they done in his life for his brother. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added unto you. This is not just something tucked away in the corner of Jesus' message. This is something that's front... And this is why he said, get behind me, Satan. Because front and centre of where he was going was a place of going, you know what, I'm going to suffer, but I, that's, that's just so the small picture. I'm going to suffer and then I'll be glorified and sit at the right hand of the Father and then you'll know where this suffering fits in. Time and time again, we get the picture of the parable of the man who finds treasure in a field. What does he do? He goes and sells everything so he can buy the field and get the treasure. That is the perspective. Did it cost him to sell everything? Did he have to give some things up? Absolutely. I'm sure that hurt. That boat that he always wanted, he just, he had to sell it to get his treasure. <laughs> like he had to give up, you know, he had to give up his, his motorbike. 
He had to give up. Oh, yeah. Oh, hang on. Hang on. This, this might cost me. What did he have to give up? Jesus gave up his family. There's so many things that, that we get caught up and attached to, and yet when we see the biggest perspective, it's get behind me, Satan. You have no idea what God's plan is, and your perspective is so narrow-minded right now. There's a fantastic clip, and we're going to look at it now. That's from a movie called The Incredibles. So if you haven't seen The Incredibles, it's a family of four. They're all superheroes. Um, so the two adults and two kids uh, all have superpowers. Oh, five. Sorry, you're Jack-Jack. At this point, they don't know that Jack-Jack's got superpowers. Sorry. But, yeah, spoiler alert. Um, so, so there's five in the family. And uh, Dash is the middle one. He's, he's a boy. And guess what his superpowers is? Speed. He can run really fast. And it gets him in trouble at school. Um, he's, he's worked out how to use it to his advantage and maybe to his teacher's disadvantage. So his mum's been called in. They've been rebuked by the, by the, the teacher and the principal doesn't know what's going on because the video clearly doesn't show anything's happening because it's so fast he got to, you know, put the tack on the teacher's seat without the video footage showing it. But then there's this car ride on the way home and I find this such a profound dialogue that um, I'll, get, I'll get Jim to play it. It's a lot shorter than the last one. Here you've been sent to the office. We need to find a better outlet, a more constructive outlet. Maybe I could if you'd let me go out for sports. Honey, you know why we can't do that. I promise I'll slow up. I'll only be the best by a tiny bit. Dashiell Robert Parr, you are an incredibly competitive boy and a bit of a show-off. The last thing you need is temptation. You always say, do your best, but you don't really mean it. Why can't I do the best that I can do? Right now, honey, the world just wants us to fit in. And to fit in, we just got to be like everybody else. But Dad always said our powers were nothing to be ashamed of. Our powers made us special. Everyone's special, Dash. Which is another way of saying no one is. So if you picked up there, it's actually... What, what's really clever about that dialogue is they've actually switched roles. The mother is actually doing quite often what a kid does. And the kid actually has the wisdom of an adult in bringing to them light some things that his parents have told him in the past. So mum's phrase is, right now, we just need to fit in. The world wants us to fit in and we need to fit in. His response is, but dad told me that there's nothing to be ashamed of with my special gifts. My special gifts are nothing to be ashamed of. Why do I have to hide them? It's really quite profound. Why are you hiding your special... Why am I hiding my special gifts, mum? Because the world just wants us to fit in. You told me I was special. Yeah, everyone's special. That's another way of saying nobody's special. It's an amazing little piece of dialogue that, again, through the mouth of a child comes some revelation for us today that I think we're not going to grasp this morning, but I'd love you to pray about because there is an amazing revelation of who God is and what he's invested in you, what he has deposited in you. First of all, he's deposited salvation. 
That's his first deposit in our lives. And we're sadly 2,000 years down the road from those disciples. That's become normal. That's become something that doesn't wow us, that doesn't blow our minds. Secondly, he went, I will never leave you or forsake you. We're talking about creator God here. We're talking about a God who has nothing that he owes us. He doesn't owe us a thing. And yet he says, I will never leave you or forsake you. I will send my spirit to remind you, to encourage you, to equip you, to enable you, to empower you. And yes, the world will tell you just to fit in. The world will tell you to shut up and just look like the rest of us. It is a lie. We will tell ourselves it's going to hurt. It's gonna, there's going to be consequences. That maybe I will look stupid if I go and pray to that person. What if God doesn't answer? What, what if the person doesn't get healed? What if, what if they laugh at me for sharing the truth? What if people don't understand why, why I love on these people when they don't love me back? They'll, they'll tell me, just give up. They don't deserve it. Give up. Fit in. Don't stand out. Don't make a difference. You told me my gifts were nothing to be ashamed of. And yet we're ashamed of them. There is a beautiful, beautiful picture that God is painting. And he started painting it inside us first. He didn't start with us first, but our revelation came from inside. And I never want to lose that perspective in my life. Because then suffering looks like it's more important than what God's doing. And I will just fade back into mediocrity and ride the wave like the rest of the world is who have ignored Christ and have no idea of who, how significant he is. I don't want that to be me. And I realise that there's an understanding of who Christ is in my life that I've suppressed because I don't want to deal with the consequences. I don't want to live a radical life because it's uncomfortable, because people will laugh at me. And I'm driven by suffering. <laughs> it's my motivator. And you go, ah, oh, how sad. God, give me your heart and your perspective, your eyes, your understanding. On Friday, I went and heard this guy speak. His gift is preaching. What really stood out to me was there was a couple of times that he just told it like it was. In love, he was a humble guy. He's a very teachable guy. He doesn't claim to have it all together. But there was a couple of times that where he said, if you don't respond in a particular way, you do not know Jesus. Because if you knew Jesus, this would be your response. And I was like, whoa, that's a little bit blunt. That's a little bit confronting. Oh, but he's actually telling the truth. Because to know Jesus is not just understand who he is. It's to actually go, Jesus, you, you invested so much into reaching out to me. You invested so much into that. I actually want to understand you. I want to know your heart. I want to know what your perspective is, what your agenda is. You are my Lord. And that means I hunger and thirst after what your agenda is, what your heartbeat is. When this guy said, if you don't look after the orphan and the widow, you don't know Jesus. If you don't love your brother, you don't know Jesus. And I was like, 
That is confronting, but it is true. Because in my little world perspective, where I think I'm the centre of the universe, I don't have that perspective that Jesus has, but I want it. And as a body, as a group of people, I go, I want us to have that revelation of the profound impact of Jesus coming and meeting with us and transforming our lives and meaning that we don't live like the world anymore means to us. I want to be like Dash. I want to say I don't want to fit in. I want to use what God's given me because there is a bigger perspective that's way more profound than anything that I will ever experience on this earth. It's bigger than me. It's bigger than my world. And it is worth hungering for, thirsting for, pursuing with a passion at a cost, even if it means suffering.